The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. All right, once again, I want to welcome you guys to Temple Bible Church. We're so glad you're here with us today or watching online. Uh, we're looking at Mark chapter 7 today, finishing up this chapter, the second half. Uh, David Richardson led us last week in a really great uh, lesson on how Jesus dealt with clean versus unclean, and we're going to look at that a little bit more uh, today as well. Well, one thing I, I'd love for you guys to pray for this week, just uh, got a message from our friend Jean-Baptiste in Rwanda. Um, they are having a, another COVID surge, and unfortunately, countries like theirs uh, don't get the vaccine as quickly as uh, we've gotten it, and so um, they're only at about 4% uh, vaccination rate in that country. So they're having a surge and uh, it's becoming difficult. And so we, we ask and they ask that uh, we as a body would pray for them as well. So if you could remember that this week, that would be great. Um, there's a prayer I read uh, this week that I really wanted to start our time together with and just uh, allow us to, to see maybe in a more clear way, the focus God wants us to have. Uh, Scotty Smith, an author, uh, writes this. He says, open our eyes to see more of your beauty and nearness today, Lord Jesus. Open our ears that we might hear you rejoicing over us with singing and the affection of an impassioned bridegroom. Open our mouths that we might offer you the worship and adoration of which you are so worthy. So as we look into this passage today, we can understand a few things that comes on the heels of a conversation between Jesus and the disciples on what makes someone unclean, talking to the Pharisees as well. Uh, it's kind of a, a really passionate uh, time that they had together. And I don't know about you, but I don't know if you've ever been like in an argument or a discussion that's been so heated or so intense that uh, you just feel like you need a break. Like, uh, this was just overwhelming and I just need to relax. Uh, some of you, I don't know if you ever just, maybe this is your thing. I grew up about an hour and a half from the Atlantic Ocean. We're near the Gulf and different places I see people going to. You ever feel like you just want to get away and that specifically to the beach, right? And for Jesus, this actually is what's happening here in this passage. He's wanting to get away. And he's going to the Mediterranean Sea. I've heard it's beautiful in different parts of the Mediterranean Sea. I've never been yet, but I'd love to go one of these days. But this is what Jesus is doing. He's trying to get away. And you can see this in this verse in, in uh, Mark chapter 7, verse 24. He says, and from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. So here he is trying to get a break. He goes into this house, and uh, he didn't really want anybody to know that he was there. And here's uh, maybe just something helpful for us to think about, that Jesus, he's moved with compassion throughout this book so far. Everywhere he goes, he's moved with compassion. And even in this break to the sea, he is still sensitive to these things, but for us, we often see it differently. We view things differently, right? When we want a break, what do we want to do? Check out, right? 
When we want to get a break, I remember even going on vacation with my family and my dad always had to seek out a church to go to. And I'm like, we're on vacation. Why are we going to church? And it was just like, he's always connected to the body and it was always telling us, we gotta, and it, oftentimes it was seminary friends in different parts of the country we'd visit with and uh, you know, they'd talk for hours and we're just sitting there twiddling our thumbs. But uh, the idea is that oftentimes Jesus in his encounters, even when he had a break, he didn't shut the switch off of compassion. He didn't just veg out. He still had this sensitivity. And for often, oftentimes with us, it's like, man, we've had a long day with the kids or an intense day at work or a grueling set of back-to-back-to-back meetings or maybe killer finals that just wrecked us in our schooling and, and we just want to break and we want to check out. But not with Jesus. He shows that we don't really ever check out in our faith and in showing compassion to others. In talking about this with my wife this week, she always gives me great wisdom, and she shared this quote uh, from Victor Scholler. He says, don't think that although you know what compassion is, you practice it. Don't think that because you feel sorry for someone, you have compassion. It's easy oftentimes for us to just feel sorry, but that's not compassion, and Jesus showed that throughout the Gospels, and he didn't check out. It was something that was in his life, in his DNA, it was in who he was. And as a believer, true compassion should simply be a part of who we are. In addition, I think it's important for us to understand that it's no accident that Jesus' attempt at rest after what we saw in the first half of the chapter in Unclean and Unclean, his first attempt at rest from this was right in the heart of Gentile country. So he's physically demonstrating a rest that's taking place, not with the Jews, but he specifically goes back to the Gentiles and he spends his time of rest among those who are considered unclean. So let's look at some of these interactions here. We got two different interactions with people that Jesus has in this passage that we have today. First of all, in verse 25 and 26, it says, but immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. So here we have a mom. She's a Gentile, Syrophoenician, which is a person from uh, the ancient Roman province in the southwestern Asia. Matthew 15, 22 tells of this account as well and points out that she was a Canaanite. She was actually a descendant of a race of people that Israel, the Jews, tried to exterminate. It's important to see the little things going on here and how it's no accident who Jesus is showing compassion to, even in his break, so to speak. In this culture, she had no right to approach a male Jewish leader, but her need outweighed her fear and social rules. And maybe you, as parents of those that are parents or have been parents, you can understand how she's feeling. Her daughter is possessed by a demon. And when your kid is sick or when your kid is in trouble, the rules go out the window. There's no room for rules when you're trying to find help for your kid and trying to find a solution to their issue. And for her, she's searching 
And she knows and she's heard of this savior, this Messiah, this person who does great things and heals people and casts out demons. Last time I was on this stage from Mark chapter five, we talked about this great, amazing thing that happened where God, uh, Jesus, basically released these legion of demons from this man who was struggling in this cemetery. And here, this story has gone out all over this area and no doubt she's heard this story. And so her first reaction here, notice her first reaction, what does she do? She falls at Jesus' feet. Her instant reaction to the Savior, and you often see this actually if you look at the encounters that people have with Jesus, even before getting to know him, their first response is some kind of reverence, falling at Jesus' feet. Matthew 15, 22 adds this desperate statement that she made. She says, have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. And again, even going back to Mark chapter five, that's what happened. Even the demons recognized him as Lord. They, they looked at him and called him that. But the tense here in Matthew 15 used for begging reveals a continual request as well. This wasn't just a one-time thing where she comes up. I don't know if you ever had a kid come up to you, whether you're a teacher or a parent or whatever interactions you might have with kids, and they come up to you, and it's just nonstop. And it's like you know a hen pecking your brain because they have this request, and it has to get answered right away, right? Just like bam, 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 bam. And eventually, you either just tell them to get lost or you just give in, right? And this is what's happening. The the Greek language here is trying to help us understand it's a continual thing. And in summer, kids are great with this stuff, right? They just, oh man. Oh, anyway, I'll just go off. Uh, So the interaction between this woman and Jesus is an interesting thing. And she is one who is begging. It's continual. It's a, almost a badgering, so to speak, of Jesus because her daughter has this demon. Look at verse 27. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So this is a very interesting chapter, a very interesting passage where Jesus, it seems, is calling a woman a dog. And it's just very uh, concerning. Uh, And if you just read it on the surface, can be confusing. Jesus implied she was a dog and didn't deserve the bread belonged to the children of the household. And this reflects a common view. He's almost, he's going back, reflecting even from the first half of the chapter of a common view of these Pharisees, of the Jews, that the Gentiles were dogs. It was just well known in that society that that's what they were referred to as. They were dogs. And so he's going back to identify that. Jews didn't mean this positively as dogs weren't generally household pets. They were scavengers, they wandered the streets, and they cleaned up messes, even in, the, in, in Paul's encounters when he was beaten and left outside the city, it talks about the dogs coming to lick his wounds. So the dogs weren't like we have, you know, our pets, I got my boy Rocky, and we hang out, and he's got a better life than a lot of people, uh, but 
not like that at all. So did Jesus' use of the term dogs mean he thought Gentiles in the same way as, as the Jews thought? Well, no. All you have to do is go back to last week and any part of Scripture and see he came to blow up what was un, unclean and clean. He came to blow up the ideas and the rules, uh, so to speak, of cleanliness. And his interaction shows us he didn't really mean in this way of calling him a dog of a scavenger. He didn't follow the same rules. And also, if you look at this term dog in the Greek language, it was a diminutive form, meaning that the dog he was referring to was a small dog. And what a lot of commentators believe is that when he's referring to this, there were these little dogs that were actually welcome in the house, and they were pets. And they hung around, and they did get the crumbs, and this woman knew that. She knew the whole situation. And so throughout the Gospels, we get a glimpse. It's kind of an interesting dialogue here. And sometimes just in the text, we don't get to see what's going on. And maybe you kind of experience that sometimes as well. But from what I've gathered and and seen in my study here, and from just listening to people in on this topic, you can see kind of a humanity and a humor going on and kind of a bantering back and forth of Jesus and this woman. So he's like... No, we're not, we're not giving the, the dogs any of the crumbs. And then the lady comes back, the woman comes back, is like, yeah, but at least they get crumbs. And it's kind of this back and forth with them. And given this one, woman's understanding of this situation, you kind of see it as like almost a playful sparring. And, and, I, and maybe for me, I can just imagine even now relatives of mine that I do this with. Like when I see them, I know it's going to be kind of this joking, it's kind of jabbing, and some of you have those type of people in your life as well. Maybe you're married to one, I don't know. But it's kind of like this back and forth situation, and that seems to be what's happening here. But ultimately, if you look at the bigger picture, the encounter is about the place of Jews and Gentiles in God's kingdom. You see, the Jews were offered the kingdom first. They were offered the kingdom of God. They were offered the gospel story first. And then it went to the Gentiles. And so here, that's the comparison is the kingdom first, the children, and afterwards the dogs, the Gentiles hear of it as well. This Gentile woman, she recognized the plan. And what's interesting is she didn't even ask for the main course. What did she ask for? She's like, well, at least we get crumbs, right? She understood what was going on in that culture. And so this Syrophoenician woman knew her position and she's happy to get the crumbs. And on the contrary, maybe we can think about ourselves. We want the best, right? When we come to God, we expect to be treated in a certain way and if we're not, then we get offended and angry and upset and start arguing with people even when we're treated uh, in any way as less than But this woman, she got some crumbs and she was happy because she knew the crumbs were more than she needed. We come to God thinking we deserve something. R.C. Sproul writes in his commentary on Mark, the good news is that in the overflow of mercy and grace that comes to us from the hands of God, though we should be satisfied with crumbs, he is not satisfied with giving us crumbs. He has lavished his grace on us. 
Matthew 15, 28, again in this account, adds this statement, O woman, your faith is great. And if you look in scripture, you don't see Jesus saying that a lot about people. You may see him saying certain things that are maybe on this level, but then that level where Jesus says someone's faith is great is very few and far between. I think it's worth our time to highlight that. That out of thousands of named and unnamed people in the Bible, this woman isn't even named here. But out of thousands of named and unnamed people throughout scripture, this woman is recognized as having great faith by the author of faith himself. And in this passage and many others, we see that Jesus is pro-woman, that God is pro-woman, that he's not diminishing as the culture did. The culture in that time diminished women. She had no place talking to this Jewish leader, this man, but instead that she is lifted up, her faith lifts her up to the status of receiving this great gift of the gospel. And we see this displayed here in this passage in a very clear way. And then Mark transitions to another miracle by Jesus in the second half of this passage in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. So again, we're kind of in this area, and you can see it on the screen, this map where he goes to the sea, he's at Tyre, and he goes up to Sidon. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't mention why he does that. Maybe he was visiting some friends. It really doesn't say. Some people are so literal that they have to know, why did Jesus go that way? This is an error in scripture, right? But not every single thing that Jesus did was written down. The Bible even says there would be books and books and books that we can't even contain what Jesus did. But he goes up the side and then he goes down to the Sea of Galilee into the area that we talked about again in Mark chapter five, where this uh, release of these demons took place with this man. And then the Bible, that passage says the man went all over Decapolis telling about what Jesus had done, right? So his story had spread all over. In verse 32, it says, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So who's they? Kind of reminds me of uh, what Chase talked about, Mark chapter two, when the men came, these friends went on the top of the roof because so many people were in the house, they couldn't get to Jesus, and they just dropped this friend right down in front of Jesus on the mat. And it's kind of that idea where these friends, their faith actually brought healing to this man. And here it says it again, they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment and they begged him to lay his hand on him. In this interaction, you actually don't even see Jesus and the man uh, interacting in any way. This man was deaf and he couldn't speak. So Jesus had to do things a little differently than he normally would. And it's important to note also that Jesus is fulfilling Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 here. It says, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This is flawed creation being given a taste of new creation. And nobody could do that except God. 
Bishop Tom Wright describes this healing as a pointer to the great healing that will occur when Jesus is finally revealed to the whole world and our present stammering praise is turned into full-hearted song. Even now, just like this man who was mute and couldn't even speak, we try to express with our words what we feel, but we we can't even do it properly. And and one day we'll be released to, to give God our praise in a way that we've never had before in the new creation. Verse 33 talks about some secrecy that takes place. It's kind of interesting. It says, in taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ear and after spitting, touched his tongue. (laughs) What an interesting way to go about these things. I agree with commentators who think this was a simple explanation, that he was recognizing the humanity of the man and what he had been through his whole life, so he was taking him aside to avoid embarrassment, further embarrassment. His whole life was embarrassing. He's deaf. He can't speak. And here Jesus recognizes humanity and takes him aside. Now, that's just a personal opinion, but it seems to fit here. Verse 34, it's just interesting of how he goes about this. Now, I don't know how this worked out, but the junior high pastor got the first mention of a wet willy in history. And not only was it a wet willy, it was a double. This is kind of interesting. Uh, But in verse 33, you see what happens in 34. He says, looking up to uh, heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So this encounter came on the heels of what scholars believe to be an eight-month ministry emphasis that Jesus had to the Gentiles. So this was toward the end of that time, and author Kent Hughes, he points out that this hands-on drama involved in this healing gives us a beautiful model that we as believers can adopt in reaching our pagan world. He says this, his look His sigh, his touch, and his word are helpful symbols for the church's attempts to rescue needy humanity. So this isn't just an accident the way he does these things. Why in the world did he lick his fingers and stick them in the guy's ears? wasn't just for dramatic effect, but there were things that he did in this moment that help us see and launch us into the opportunities for ministry around us among those in need. So maybe we can look at these a little deeper. First of all, his look. This look represented a constant communication with and dependence on the Father. Where did he look? He looked to the Father. So many of us, including myself, get busy with the stuff of life, with the things that are going on, the hectic schedule, all this stuff going on with our kids and every activity we have them in that's way too much, of course, including myself. And so we get so busy that we don't gaze upon the beauty of God, that we don't look to God. And it was so bad in my life, uh, maybe a few years back, I was at a conference that was convicted by this, that I could show you my phone, that in the morning, I have a reminder that I put on my phone, and all it says is, literally, gaze upon the beauty of God. And that's it. Because we're so prone to get distracted and look at life and the stresses of life and the cares of this world. But Jesus, he looked 
He gazed upon his father's beauty and he saw the source of this healing. The second thing he did, what did he do? He sighed. The sigh represented, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus' massive compassion toward people, his desire for this new kingdom to come. It's reminiscent of, among other things, Jesus outside Lazarus' tomb. If you remember that story, outside Lazarus' tomb in John eleven thirty three, it says that Jesus was greatly troubled. The sigh. You ever experienced that in your life? This sigh where it's just like, I'm so over this, this this broken world, another news, another story of, of a stroke or, or cancer or, or a, a kid just following the wrong path or a, a marriage breaking up and, and so many things that exist in this broken creation. And Jesus, through his compassion, physically and audibly, you can hear him sigh. I often hear these sighs at funerals, but how about maybe we change our perspective and actually start sighing before someone dies and showing care and compassion to people in that way and and seeing that we can be used by God to make a difference in their lives and in their struggle and in their pain. And here's Jesus sighing. Third thing, he touches Jesus didn't need to touch this man. Look at the previous story. What did he do? He just said, the woman, your daughter's free. And the lady goes home and the daughter's laying in bed, fine. He didn't need to touch this man. He didn't need to touch the man with leprosy or the demon-possessed boy or many others whom he healed. But his touch represented love. His willingness his willingness to not stand at a distance, armed with hand sanitizer and rubber gloves and looking at a problem, right? Now, don't, don't get me wrong. They're very in need in this past year especially, so don't ditch the sanitizer, but he wasn't one to look at a problem and just see it from afar and say, all right, you're good, you're good, you're good. At times, he saw the need to express physically a touch it was important. Last night, as my wife and I were talking about this, and I get a lot of great insight from her on these topics, but she reminded me in her dealings with kids and care and, and tough environments with foster love that oftentimes people come from trauma, they've been touched in a way that is horrible, they've been abused. They've been physically touched in a way that turns them away from people and turns them away from love. And that feeling of, I can't ever be touched in a way that is loving. And so oftentimes we see Jesus showing that understanding, obviously, and touching in a way that brings life. I observed a very clear example of this. It's just really fascinating how God set this up. Last week, my parents were in town and we had some food left over, a ton of food left over from a Wednesday night thing with the junior high. And so we went to deliver this food over to Feed My Sheep. And Feed My Sheep is a place that serves a hot meal every single day of the year, every day. 
If you want to get involved, we have opportunities to do that. And Feed My Sheep, we're going to have my friend up here uh, next month uh, talking about that. But it just happened to be that we were on there on the day where my buddy Jeff Stiegel started his uh, time as the director of Feed My Sheep. It was like the first day. And so we're out front. We had dropped the food off. We're out front talking. He's telling my dad about what goes on. And we're there maybe 20 to 30 minutes. And throughout that time that we're talking on the corner as people arrive for that hot lunch, he encounters people left and right coming up to him. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jeff. Hey, man. And they're coming up to him. And what happens is as he's talking to us, he's not ignoring them. He's actually allowing everybody that's walking up to interrupt our conversation, and he gives a side hug, he gives a hug, he gives a fist bump, a high five, a handshake to many people that oftentimes many of us would walk across the other side of the street to avoid. And here he is, physical touch, shaking hands, hearing their needs and calling them by name. First day on the job, it wasn't his first day there. He knew these people by name, and he showed their value by touching them in a way that showed God's love. And even today, as I speak, there is a family and an intern and another family at Feed My Sheep from TBC doing that right now. They're taking their time to show love, preparing a meal, shaking hands, going out, talking, hanging out with people who are in need, and it's just an amazing thing to see God's love being expressed through touch. And the last thing is his word. It's one word that he spoke, but translated for us as two words, be opened, in verse 35 and 36. His ears were open, his tongue was released. In verse end of 34, he says, Ephatha, that is, be open. His ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. So here he is, having his mouth open, his ears open to hear. It wasn't just physical healing, though. It was freedom and an offer for new life spiritually as well. These are the first words this man heard. Imagine that, the first words, be opened. And it's like Jesus says these words, and there he hears it. Then we, in in verse 36, it says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I love that verse. Reminds me of Peter and John back in Acts 4 when they were brought before the council and told, you need to stop. You need to quit it. Quit talking about this man, Jesus, right? And what do they say? Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. We can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Someone else who couldn't help but share is David. If you look into his life all throughout the Psalms, what do you see? Him sharing. The other night I read this verse uh, right before bed, Psalm 40, verse 5. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell them, yet they are more than can be told. How about you? Are you ready to share? Are you willing to share and speak of the amazing things that God has done and he's doing? And then the last verse, they were astonished beyond measure 
saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Astonished beyond measure. When was the last time that happened to you in your encounters with Jesus? Are you numb to the things of Jesus? Are you numb to the things that God can do or maybe even has done in your life? Are you just so full of the world that you just can't really fit him in to be astonished by the things that he's doing all around you? I know oftentimes I do that. I feel that way. And I don't leave room for astonishment and wonder. And as I thought about that, I thought about what am I astonished by? So I can go into negative things, right? We all can be astonished by watching five minutes of the news, right? Astonished by the, well, I mean, there's lots of things. But I thought of some cool things. I'm astonished and amazed, even though I've seen it now for 14, 15 years, of 100 plus students going into our community to share the gospel. Astonished by you, adults, parents, drivers, host homes, park hosts, to go out and share the gospel in our community. Astonished by the outpouring of love for our daughter who just had knee surgery. It all happened in community. Everybody we know was coming by and sharing cards and messages and things like that. Astonished by the impact of so many ministries in our community, Feed My Sheep, FCA, Helping Hands, Foster Love, Hope Pregnancy, Family Promise, Discipleship Unlimited, Body of Christ, Christian Farms, Treehouse, Hope Mommies, and many, many more. I'm sorry if I missed your nonprofit. Astonished by what God is doing, but none of this is happening individually. It's happening in community, and you can be part of that community. This man was healed in community. His friends brought him to Jesus. And community is something that we value here at TBC, and we would love to connect you to a deeper community. If you just go right out there to that Welcome Center, we'd love to connect you to a small group. So as we wrap this up, maybe a few questions we can consider as we get ready to sing. Have you tasted the deep compassion of our Savior? Have you tasted of it? Have you embraced it? Have you come to know him as your king? If you haven't, today's the day to recognize that. If you have, does it make a difference in your life or have you allowed yourself to become numb by the cares and trappings of this world? So as we sing together, I'd like to challenge you to take time during this closing song to let God push you to look upon the Father and know he is good, to sigh in sorrow that this world and those in it are broken, to consider how God might use you and your touch to point people to becoming citizens of a new kingdom and embrace the call to speak words of life to so many in need around you. Let's go ahead and stand together. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing our closing song. God Almighty, we're thankful for the challenge from your word today, Lord, to recognize you as king and to see that you can use us just like you use the Savior, not to shy away from expressing compassion, not checking out, 
but seeing your great power be used through us. Lord, to look, to sigh, to touch, and to speak words of life. We thank you for this time together and bless us as we just think about it more during this song. In your name we pray, amen.